You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. If you weren't able to finish, no worries. Uh, we'll kind of go through and answer them all together so we can just kind of fill in the gaps. Um, I'm just going to go like Abby did this last week, and I think it worked really good. I'm just going to ask different tables um, to see if you were able to come up with uh, the answer. So table, let's go with this table. Who was Jesus' audience? What did you guys notice? Everyone's looking at each other. Who's going to answer? <laughs> okay, so in verse 1, there's, yeah, many thousands of people. Did you notice anybody else? Yeah, and the disciples. Yeah, really good. So there's a crowd of people, so many thousands, and then down in verse 13, it says someone in the crowd. So we don't know who that someone is, and it's purposely ambiguous. It's just some random person from the crowd. The point is that the person in the crowd is not also a disciple. But we have lots of people and then the disciples as well. Really good. Uh, The second question is, what is the context or the occasion? So let's go to this back table. What did you guys notice was the occasion for which Jesus then tells the parable? Or what do you think? (laughs) Okay, so there's a lot of people all trying to hear Jesus. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Did you notice in verse... 13, though, what does it say in verse 13? Yeah, so the person that asked Jesus, the question is, hey, Jesus, look at what it says in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then Jesus says, but he said to him, which I love is man, man, I don't think it's supposed to be like man. It's just man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. So that's the occasion. The occasion is somebody in the crowd asked Jesus, to try to settle a dispute between him and his brother about inheritance. That's the occasion. So that's what Jesus is going to be talking about in the parable, right? So when we're trying to figure out what's the point of this parable, he's speaking into that, which is really important. Yeah, really good. Okay, so I just summarized it. Someone in the crowd asked Jesus to arbitrate an inheritance dispute in verse 13. Okay, really good. Uh, Let's go back to, let's go to this middle table right here. Uh, What was did you guys notice the points of reference? And then, if you did, what, who do you think is being represented in this parable? It's a short parable, but who do you think is being represented? Like, who, is the, who are the characters or the character in the parable? Yeah, so there's a rich man. So who do you think that rich man is supposed to represent in light of Jesus' audience? Yeah, what's the land? Yeah, so I think I'll just make it simple because this one is, this part of the understanding parables can be a little bit confusing. So points of reference is like, who are the characters or the main aspects of the parable? In this one, it's really simple and straightforward for the most part. It's just, there's a rich man. And so then that is the main point of reference. So who do you think that person is supposed to represent in light of Jesus's audience? 
Yeah, so most likely it's the guy who asked him a question, right? Because this person is obviously interested in wealth. He's interested in possessions. He's interested in material things. And so then Jesus is going to tell this parable about a person interested in material things. So most likely that person is represented in this rich man. Again, that, the point of reference can be a little bit uh, difficult to kind of try to observe. Um, okay, and then the next one is the unexpected turn. Let's go to the back table. What do you guys think was the unexpected turn in this short parable? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head right there. It's interesting because Jesus calls this person who has obviously increased in wealth such a great deal, and he's, all he's doing is building up more storage so he can continue amassing wealth and possessions. In the ancient world, this person is not a fool. This person is a wise person. I, I found this proverb in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. It says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Right? In the ancient world, you would be a fool if you didn't store up, and you would be a fool if you didn't have a lot of possessions. Right? A wise person is one who has a lot of possessions. A wise person would be one that knows how to uh, produce a lot from the land. So the unexpected turn is the fact that Jesus calls this person a fool, which is the direct contrast to someone who is wise. And we're going to talk about exactly why he says that, but I just want to read in verse 20. Look, it says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Yeah, I think that that's the unexpected turn. You wouldn't expect Jesus, or you wouldn't expect some first century teacher to call this person a fool. If anything, people would consider this person to be a wise man. But again, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God is communicating, that he is bringing, again, it's very contradictory to uh, what we or what maybe the first century audience would have considered to be uh, a reasonable one. Does anybody want to add to that or any thoughts about that? We're going to talk about it in a minute, but yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that, and you can see some of the elements in there. Obviously, Jesus isn't saying he's a fool because he's storing up things for himself, but there's some heart motivation that he's getting at, and we're going to talk about that in the interpretation section. So yeah, really good. Uh, we already talked about this. Sorry, table on the right. We'll start with you next time. Uh, the unex- uh, sorry, the reaction from the audience, unless you saw something I didn't, which maybe you did. Not available. (laughs) N-A. All right, so really good. Um, Before we move on to step number six, does anybody have anything else that just in reading it and kind of slowing down that you noticed that you thought was interesting? That, yes. Um, We were talking about the line that says, this night your soul is required. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that is an interesting statement. What's happening here is the fact that this person who has been storing up all of these years and is just about to relax and enjoy what he has been storing up is now going to be in a position where he is no longer able to. Um, what it's probably representing is this, the fact that this man is no longer alive. The, what this parable is not communicating, something about the afterlife, something about the coming of Jesus. It's not, that's not the point of it. So that's why it's probably a little bit ambiguous. But yeah, this person thought that they were going to have all this time to enjoy their possessions, but in an instant, they are no longer able to. So most likely this person is no longer alive. Um, again, don't read too much into it about how, like, this night your, the soul is required of you. Like, don't read into that anything too much. That's not really the point of the parable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you have possessions, and all of us do, whether it's a lot or a little, if you pass away, it's going to go somewhere. Uncle Sam is going to take a good chunk of that, unfortunately. But then hopefully you have some relatives that get some of that, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Anything else that you thought was interesting? Yeah, Audrey. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, we're you're getting you're getting into this next point that we're going to talk about exactly. And somebody some of you already mentioned is like exactly what is Jesus getting at? Like, why is this person actually foolish? Because we know in that context, storing up things is not foolish. But for some reason, Jesus calls him a fool, and he's getting at the heart of the matter. And he'll he'll explain that in uh, the end of paragraph, that paragraph, but he'll also explain it again in the last paragraph. So let's move on to step number six. So at, step number five is, is observation, slowing down, rereading, noticing details of the text. Just trying to ask the question is, what does the text say? It's really important to say, I'm not trying to figure out what it means. Because what we do a lot of the times is we immediately read something and then just start making conclusions about it without noticing all the details, and oftentimes if we just keep reading, the answer kind of, it kind of, the problem kind of solves itself a lot of times just in the context. Then we realize, oh, that conclusion that I was making isn't right because it, it get, get answers later on. So uh, now we're going to move into that step, which is step number six, which is interpret, which is where we are like Bible detectives, 
and we've observed this crime scene, and we're going to use all of the clues to the best of our ability to then solve the crime, to understand what exactly happened and why it happened. This is where we ask the question, why? What are the meanings behind the facts that we observed? And so I have a few questions um, that I want to ask, and I want you guys to kind of discuss it at your tables to kind of see maybe some of the answers that you can come up with. So it's also on your sheet. So the first question in, in our interpretation section is, what is the heart posture or the attitude that is being exposed in the audience? And what I want, what I want you to think about is that there's two different groups represented in the audience. There's the crowd, which is representing kind of that man that is there, the someone in the crowd, And then there's also the disciples. And so what do you think Jesus is getting at here in this parable? And then he'll explain a little bit more later on when in verse 22 he says, and he said to his disciples, so read that and look at what Jesus is teaching to his disciples about this parable. And Jesus kind of in verse verse, um, 20 and 21 is kind of more directing the heart posture of the man. But Try to figure out and discuss what do you think the heart posture and the attitude. This is kind of getting to the point of why did Jesus call this man a fool, really? What is he getting at? So discuss it amongst yourself. Try to find evidence in the text the best you can as part of the discussion. And then I'll give you a minute and then we'll come back and see what you guys came up with, all right?
heart posture or the attitude that Jesus is trying to expose in his audience. So we're going to go to table on my right. So let's talk about the man who asked the question. What do you think is the, the, the heart posture, the attitude that Jesus is addressing? Yeah. Yeah, I like how you pointed that out. It's, it's like a demand. Teacher, tell my brother. And you're like, okay, slow down, dude. Like, <laughs> mm. Yeah. What does he say in verse 15? Because Jesus, before he tells the parable, he makes this statement after he asks him a question. Yes. So, and then he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told him a parable. That right there is a good indicator of what the heart attitude, and what does he say? Life, take care and be on guard against all what? Covetousness. That's a kind of a weird word. Covetousness. It sounds very like Bible-y and stuff like that. Um, coveting is, is, actually I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. But first and foremost, for the person in the crowd, the, the heart posture, the attitude is coveting. He desires strongly something that doesn't belong to him. So he has a bad relationship with understanding and being fine with what he has, and he wants something that doesn't belong to him. And it's like this strong desire. Um, does that, if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, and you don't even have to be familiar with the Old Testament, but there's this thing called the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. AKA, don't covet anything that isn't yours. This person is coveting something that doesn't belong to him. So Jesus right here is like, dude, you're breaking the Tenth Commandment right here. And then he's going to tell this parable that demonstrates the dangers of that, right? And he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So great. What about the second person or the second part of the audience, which is the disciples? What is, what, because he kind of explains it in that last paragraph. He kind of gives the disciples like this little lesson. What do you think, what is the lesson about? Again, it has to do with money, possessions, and wealth. What's it, what's it about? Yeah. So for sure in the first, in the person in the crowd, he, his priorities are wrong. It shifts a little bit, and there's a word that's repeated, and again, I didn't give you enough time to probably see this, but there's a word in that last paragraph in light of the lesson and the, the heart posture that he's, he's exposing in the disciples, and this word is anxious. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, 
how many, in verse uh, 24, of how much more value are you than these birds? In verse 25, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour? Why are you anxious in verse 26? And then verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. So it's a little bit different of a, a lesson for the disciples. For the, for the, the man asking the question, it's, it's about coveting. And then what is that repeated word about the for the disciples? What's the word? Being anxious. So the, really the heart attitude and the, the posture that Jesus then directs towards the disciples is their, their fear and their anxiety of being able to provide for themselves on a daily basis. Again, what's interesting is that they're different, they're different heart postures, but it's all about their relationship to either, we can call it money, material possessions, wealth, right? So kind of along those lines, they, both of them have an unhealthy view of those things. Both say this, I don't have enough. Both of them, if you could summarize, I don't have enough. I don't have what I need. And that's kind of an interesting, I kind of, in my mind, I was like, it kind of seems like that's, that's the heart of both of them. Jesus, it's kind of the same passage, but in, in Matthew it says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? These are, Jesus knows what the disciples are thinking. He's like, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I'm a very anxious person. When I was in high school, my, my favorite verse was Philippians 4, 6-7. through 7. It says, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command. Paul's like, do, you, do not be anxious. That's a daily battle for me. Like being anxious about life, right? Just especially when it comes to material possessions and wealth and future and provision. It's just constant anxiety. And before we move on to the next question, um, my favorite Bible teacher, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he has this amazing quote that kind of leads into the second interpretation question. And he says this about Jesus' teachings about money, because Jesus teaches a lot about money. He says this, Our relationship to our resources is the most reliable indicator of our allegiance and our devotion. I'll say it one more time. Our relationship to our resources is the most reliable indicator of our allegiance and devotion. And so that's why Jesus spends so much time talking about money is because money has a really big hold over somebody's life and somebody's heart. Um, I have a lot of verses, but at the end of this verse in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus knows the human condition, and it's interesting that the human condition hasn't changed in 2,000 years, right? <laughs> we're about possessions, we're about treasure, we're about wealth. Well, not me, of course. I'm not materialistic. <laughs> it's a joke. For, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why, if you, if you, if you understand, that's why Tim Mackey said that. It's the, the, the biggest sign of your allegiance and your devotion is how you view your money. Okay, so we answered the first question, the heart posture. What about the kingdom reality? Now, this one's a little bit difficult. Remember I said the parables, for the most part, are teaching something about God's kingdom. Jesus is trying to reorientate people around kingdom of God values, kingdom of God economy. So what do you think is the reality, the truth about God's kingdom that is being communicated through this parable? And you can think about the two different audiences. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to discuss that. Again, this is interpretation, but just kind of see what you guys come up with. What do you think is the truth about God's kingdom that Jesus is trying to communicate? Okay? All right, take a few minutes.
to discuss this. We've got to get to the application. So, uh, okay. So, again, the question was, what do we think the kingdom reality, the truth about God's kingdom that Jesus is trying to communicate, and it should have to do something with wealth, material possessions, right? Because he says in, um, sorry, I have to unlock this really quickly. He says that before he gives the parable, he says, for one's life, in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then, so it has to do with possessions and things like that. And then with the disciples, it's kind of this idea of worrying about money and provision. So what did you guys think? What did you guys come up with? I'll just leave it kind of open. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe something like the kingdom reality that Jesus is communicating that if you are living in God's kingdom, you, don't, you shouldn't be worrying about money the way that everybody else does. Because look at what he says in verse, um, at, the end of the, at the end of the story, in verse 30, he says this to his disciples, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows what you need. Instead, seek the kingdom. So it's this idea that the world around you, everybody is just seeking things for their own benefit. Possessions, wealth, money. He's like, that, that's not what we do in God's kingdom. Like, you don't need to seek those things. You don't need to worry about those things because that's not what this kingdom is about. Instead, you just need to trust because God, the king of the kingdom, knows what you need before you even ask. Yeah, I like that. Anybody else want to add anything? Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, so kind of a little bit along the same lines. Like, God is ultimately the provider. Um, I like how he uses, like, nature. I, I'm just one of those people that likes to be out in nature. And so every time I go out today, I was, I call it Auntie Hill, but I, it's Makiki Valley, Makiki Loop. I call it Auntie Hill because all the aunties and uncles that go on there, it's like insane. The, the, the aunties and uncles that go up that thing, I can barely make it up there. But Every time I'm up there, I always see birds. And every time I do, I just, it's just something that speaks to me, nature. I just stop and I'm just always, I always am reminded of this passage. Because I'm always thinking in my mind about money and about possessions, all this kind of stuff. And then every time I see a bird on there, I'm just like, or at, at our YWAM base right now, we have all these mango trees. And there's just mangoes on the ground everywhere. And these birds are just having a heyday. And I'm like, it just reminds me of this passage, that this truth that Jesus says, hey, in my kingdom, you don't, you don't seek those things. You don't worry about those things. That's not how this kingdom works. Yeah. Anybody else want to add anything to that? Kingdom reality, the kingdom truth. What about in verse, um, sorry, I want to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself for this next question. I think so. What about in verse, what about in verse 31? At the very end, Jesus says this. Instead, so he's, he's making a contrast and in verse 29, he says, Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. In contrast to that, you don't do what the world does. In my kingdom, you do this. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. So I think here this, there's this reality because the kingdom reality also, it's connected to the parable because the, the rich man that's called a fool, 
right? We're trying to figure out why did Jesus call him a fool? It seems like there's a contrast that Jesus is making to the way his disciples are to live compared to this rich man, where this rich man was storing up things for his own benefit, for his own pleasure, right? Look at what it says. I will, in verse 19, and I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And in and of itself, like that's not a bad thing. Like God gives good gifts to his people. God loves it when you're enjoying life and you have an abundance of possessions. But it seems like this man was all about his possessions. In contrast, the reality is that God, if you are participating in my kingdom, you do not seek the things that the world seeks, which is their own kingdom. You seek my kingdom. And sometimes it looks like working for a a bank or being a lawyer where you are amassing a lot of money. Maybe it does look like that and God uses money, right? Like money's not a bad thing in and of itself. But that shouldn't be the reality that we, we, we live in. Our lives as people in God's kingdom should not be all about possessions, all about building my kingdom, my portfolio, my 401k, my retirement. Those things are great. And you're kind of a little bit maybe foolish to not think about those things, right? In a way, like God gave us a brain to think. And so those are important, but that should not be our end goal. Our end goal should not be at the end of the day, my goal in life is to be able to just sit at the beach, to do nothing, to just relax, to eat and drink and be merry. So everything I do, every single decision I make in life is so that I can get to that place as fast as I can. That's not, that's not what Jesus is asking us to do and to think. Does he bless his people? Absolutely. Is it good to save for retirement? Absolutely. Is retirement a bad thing? Absolutely not. Does God love it when his people are sitting at the beach enjoying his creation? Absolutely. But that shouldn't be our goal in life. That should not be our priority. And it's, it's interesting because this is, having, this is having to do with money and wealth and possessions. Right? So I think that's, that's a little bit about the kingdom reality. Again, it's, it's talking about don't, don't view your life as if I don't have enough. And then the last uh, kind of interpretation question is, how should the audience respond? So let's just think about the disciples. Like in that last paragraph, Jesus is talking about anxiety and worry. Like what is he, what is he trying to teach his people? Again, we've talked, about it, we've talked about it. So if you just kind of want to summarize it, all the things that we said. Yeah, Uncle Les. Oh, this question, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, God. Whatever God does give you, you're called to steward it, and you're called to then use it for his kingdom purposes. I like to, the easiest way I think I like to think about this is that we're either living for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of me. That's ultimately how we live our lives. It's either, it's to build my kingdom or it's to build God's kingdom. And again, lots of times, those things sometimes, a lot of times, are kind of synonymous. Like the things that God has given you, the money, the possessions, the giftings, the talents, he wants to use for his kingdom, and you get the benefit of that. But sometimes those things don't necessarily align. So what we want to do is we want to align our priorities around Jesus and his kingdom, especially when it comes to money, possessions, those kind of things. We want to make sure that we are using those things to build God's kingdom and not just our own kingdom. So it's a heart posture. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said. I think that's great. And I just want to point out too, because if we just like reflect back into like 21st century world and we just look at the people around us that are not, are not Christians, we can observe their life and we can notice how they live their life and the decisions they make. And ultimately it's pretty much self-motivated, self-centered decisions. It's how can I live my life in the way that I want to. And it's just important to realize that sometimes those things aren't necessarily what God wants for us as his people. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they aren't. So we just need to realize exactly what that is. Yeah. I'm going to move into the application part because that's, that's the goal. So step number seven, the reason why we do all this work, the reason why we read and pray and observe and interpret and talk about genre and all that stuff is to get to this application. So what does all this mean to us today? We've kind, of, we've kind of dabbled in it a little bit, um, but I have a few, I have kind of like three main questions that I want you to either individually process, or if you're bold enough or feel comfortable enough at your table talking about money and your issues with coveting. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so used to like in YWAM, like in our Bible schools, because Abby and I are in charge to just like make people say stuff. And I realized like that's not necessarily where everybody's at. So whatever you're comfortable with talking about your coveting problems, you know. Um, but here's some questions. Is, again, these are just, as I was studying it, I just kind of like start thinking of questions, like application questions that I can then uh, try to see how this relates to my own life. So, the, so what I kind of came up with is first and foremost, I want you to ask yourself, do I identify with Jesus's audience now? Maybe you are like me and you don't identify because you have a really healthy view of money and all that kind of stuff. But maybe you identify yourself with the person that has a problem with coveting. Or maybe you identify with the disciples who are just anxious and worrying about things. You guys, I'll be honest with you. I have a major problem with coveting. Like, major. I am always in the position of I never have enough and every time I view somebody, I see, I, like, I like cars. I see a nice car go down the road, and I'm just like, I deserve that car. I want that car. I should have that car. After, uh, like, last week, uh, Abby and I went to watch the sunset at China Walls. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. It's getting kind of crazy down there. But there's, like, a house right to the left that, like, overlooks. And I'm like, man, I want that house. Like, that person is probably a sinner, you know? They don't deserve that house like I do. And, but that's like, I'm coveting. I'm strongly desiring something that doesn't belong to me. Like, that's a, that's a heart posture that is not kingdom-oriented. It's David-oriented, right? So I'll be the first to admit I have a coveting problem. I also can relate to the disciples. I also have a very big worrying problem, right? <laughs> like, um, I worry about money. I worry about that stuff all the time. So if you watch the news or anything like that, that's the goal is to make you worried, right? There's a recession, there's this, there's that, and all this kind of stuff. And you can't just help but be worried. So I'm, I'm, I identify with both. So if you do, cool. So just think about who you identify with. And then what ways do you relate to that person? Again, the audience. And 
what is the heart attitude or posture? Again, is it something that you're like, yeah, like I do struggle with like coveting and like that whole thing. Or maybe it's more so like I worry and I just have so much anxiety about my future and about my wealth and about possessions. So think about that. And the second question is then after that, what does this parable teach me about God's kingdom, right? How does this parable confront and challenge my views on wealth and possessions? How does this confront how I currently view the things that God has given me, the things that I have? And is there some, something that I need to change? Is there a way that I need to now view my possessions that are more in line with how Jesus desires? And then the third question is, how should I then respond to this kingdom reality in relationship to my finances and possessions? What is, and then think through, like, what is one practical way that I can apply this in my life this week? So again, identify which character, maybe, or characters you identify with. What this parable is communicating to me about God's kingdom, specifically in the areas of wealth and possessions. And then how, ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, like, how should I actually respond to that this week? Like, what is one practical way that I can try to overcome my struggle of coveting? Or how can I try to begin to overcome my fear and my anxiety about my future and about my wealth and my possessions, right? You need the Holy Spirit to do that. You need the Holy Spirit to speak. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. Again, feel free to do it on your own. Feel free to discuss it at your table with whatever you're comfortable with. Um, I think it's good to talk together. Um, challenge one another and things like that. Be open and honest, um, but I understand not everybody's comfortable with it. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that, and then we'll come back and I'll kind of close us, okay?
Just for time's sake, we're, I'm just going to move on kind of to like the, a few last thoughts, but um, you guys are free, free to like hang out for a little bit longer after we're done uh, if you want to keep talking and going through this. Um, I just want to kind of like leave off with just a few final things. Um, if you look at the back of the, the sheet, there's like the application questions on the back. I would encourage you guys like in your discussion to kind of take this with you this week and kind of maybe in your time with, with the Lord, maybe kind of go back and reflect on these. And then I have just a few like bullet point things that I was just thinking of. And I have a few scriptures that I've just kind of looked at that kind of maybe help apply to this. Um, and so these are just, again, a little bit more, a few more questions that can help maybe just get your, your mind going. So these are questions that I was asking myself. What is my relationship with my money and my possessions? Another question I wanted, wanted to ask is, how does that affect how I live my life? Because the way I relate to my money is going gonna, is gonna to massively affect my decision making. It's going to massively affect my priorities in life. Do my possessions or slash finances get in the way of my obedience? Are there th- times in my life when I know that I'm supposed to be doing something that God asked me to do and I don't do it because of money? For me, most of the time, it's giving. Most of the time, I feel like I'm supposed to be giving something, and I'm like, I just gave something. How many times this week can I possibly give again? How many offerings is there possibly that I can, you know, just things like that. So that's just a personal thing for me. Like, that's a lot of times how I am not obedient in my relationship with, with my finances. Some, for some of you, you may, you may, it may be bigger. It may be like, hey, I feel like God is asking me to do this or to move into this career field or to do this. And it's like, if I do that, then I'm going to be giving up this job or I may not be able to live in this house, that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe much bigger, um, seemingly bigger uh, decisions. Um, how can I use my resources for God's kingdom, right? So every one of us has, God has given us possessions. God has given us some sort of money, um, sometimes I think that, well, I don't have a lot, so this doesn't apply to me. That's not the case. Whatever you have, especially for us living in Hawaii in the 21st century, Western world, United States of America, we are the richest people on the planet, right? So we have so much to give. So what, how can I use what God has given me for his kingdom? If you have $10, what does that look like, right? $100, $1,000, and so on and so forth. Your, your vehicles, just whatever. There's lots of different things. Your house, that kind of thing. The question I have to ask myself, am I too reliant on my possessions? Do I put more trust in money than God? And I will say the answer to this for me is yes. I say that I trust God, and I'll just be honest with you guys. I, if you don't know already, my wife and I work with YWAM, Youth of the Mission. We don't get paid at YWAM. Um, we live off relationship-based support. And so it's easy to say that I trust in God. That's easy for me to say. But when I evaluate it, I still, I promise you, when it comes down to it, I'm like, too many times I'm trusting on myself. I'm trusting in my ability to save my money. I'm trusting my ability to, to do this and to do that. All the while, it's like, yeah, you trust God with your finances because you don't get paid, right? You just rely on people giving you money. Like, it's easy to say, but I don't know if that's actually how, what I, how I actually I don't know if that's actually what I believe in my heart. And I know that oftentimes I put more trust in my bank account than I do on God to provide. I didn't realize this was going to be a confessional. (laughs) 
You guys are going to be like, you cannot be teaching anymore. This guy, he's messed up. Another question is, do I struggle with coveting, coveting what others have? I already said I do, so we're going to move on to that. Uh, do I struggle with trusting God's provision? I already said I do, so moving on with that. All right, we're almost done, I promise. Uh, and this is, this is ultimately what I wanted to end on. Because the, the, what I boiled it, what I think the heart attitude for both the disciples and that person that desired an inheritance is the, the thing that I don't have enough. So what is the antidote to that problem? The antidote that Paul, I think, gives us is this, what he calls the secret of contentment. And I want to read just one or two passages because what I want to do is I want to evaluate my life and think, what would it look like in my life if I was actually content? If I was content with a lot, if I was content with a little, I think that you guys, our lives would be radically different. I think our attitude in life would be so radically different. And this is what I mean. Uh, here's a few passages. Again, I have most of these um, written down so you can refer back to them. And this is kind of just the way I want to end with just some scriptures. In Hebrews, I, this is, I kind of stumbled upon this today. I haven't read it for a while, and I think this is amazing. The author of Hebrews says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Instead, be content with what you have. For he has said, this is quoting Jesus, I will never leave you for or forsake you. So in light of that, this is what the author says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So he's like, the reason why you can be content is because Jesus promised that he will never leave you or forsake you, right? That's the promise. That's the reason why the author of Hebrew gives us is we can be content. We're not, we're not learning and trying to be content out of um, just goodwill, or just, I hope that I can learn to be content. I, I hope that God will bless me. We know that there's these promises that God will provide for us because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Here's that passage in Philippians that I was talking about with what Paul says. Now, the importance of this passage is that Paul is talking about the way he has lived his life, where Paul has lived a life with plenty, and he has also lived a life of imprisonment and beating for the gospel. And so he says in light of that, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, this is something you have to learn. It's not something that is like some divine supernatural thing. It's like something you actually have to learn to be content. I know, and this is, what he mean, this is what he means by being content. I know how to be brought low. I've been be- beaten. I've been in prison. I've been persecuted. And I know how to abound. He was at one time a, a prominent Pharisee, right? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So if you've ever seen us. Uh, Steph Curry with Philippians 4.13 on this shoe. I can do all things. That passage does not mean you can shoot a hoop. You can shoot the basketball well. That's not what it means. I think it's kind of cool, but that's not what it means. What Paul says is you can be content. You can be hungry. You can be well-fed. You can be absolutely content in your life. Why? Because he is the one who gives you the strength to do so. That is absurd in a worldly perspective. But in the kingdom reality is that through the Holy Spirit, he can actually give you the ability to say, I'm hungry, and man, I'm good. I'm feasting, and man, I'm good. That is what it means to be content in everything. What would your life look like if that was truly the way you viewed your life? If that was truly how you live? Just be content. A few more passages, I promise. Then we're done. 
This is the one I mentioned, Philippians. Just before that, Paul commands the church at Philippi, do not be anxious about anything. You know how you battle. If you're the one that related to the disciples of being anxious, this is how you overcome and combat anxiety. You pray. James, I think it's in James, he says, you ask not because you, you don't pray, you, like, you don't have the things because you don't ask. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result of that is that the peace of God the peace that the Spirit of God gives you that surpasses all understanding, it, it doesn't make any sense in a worldly perspective, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The command is do not be anxious about anything. I promise. Two more, two more slides. One more after this. This is a quote, and I don't know who quoted it. It wasn't me. But I love this. Somebody that was wise said this. The happiest you will ever be is when you are the most satisfied and content in God regardless of your physical circumstances. So if you can learn the secret of being content in your life, whether you have a lot or a little, that you will be the happiest person in life. I love that. The happiest you will be is when you are the most satisfied and content in God regardless of your physical circumstances. Your physical circumstances do not determine God's love for you. And too often times, we, we allow our physical circumstances to define who God is to us. God doesn't love me because I don't have this. Or God loves her because she has that. Physical circumstances do not define God and his reality and his love and his kingdom, right? And we need to make sure uh, we realize this. Now, this is the last passage, I promise. If you are the person that maybe has a lot and maybe... Um, you know, you're like, hey, God has blessed me, and I want to make sure that I'm using the things that I have for God's kingdom. There's this awesome passage. Again, I kind of stumbled upon this in 1 Timothy. I think this is such practical advice. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this, as for the rich, again, we all technically are rich, right, compared to most of the world. So let's just say this all relates to us. In this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I love that. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's a contrast between uncertainty of earthly riches and then the riches that God provides. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. I love that. Rich in good works. That's such a beautiful line to be generous and ready to share. So if God, if God has given you things, like the, the call for us is to be generous with those things. Be ready to share. And look at what he says. This is in contrast to that, that parable where that guy was storing up earthly possessions for him to enjoy. Look at what it says. This rich person, when they're generous and ready to share, this is the result. They thus store up treasures for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's an eternal reality. It's a kingdom reality that Timothy is addressing for these rich people. And I just think that's such a beautiful passage. And again, I kind of wanted to end there with some scriptures to kind of like point us to how we can then maybe overcome some of our obstacles, some of our failures, some of our struggles, and really be a people that hear God's word but don't just hear it and kind of think about it and then forget it and walk away, but actually respond to what God is actually asking us to do as his people. How do we live in God's kingdom and how should we relate to our finances as people of God? And it's going to look different for each and every one of us, right? 
And that's the beautiful thing about application is the Holy Spirit is working with you as an individual. And so how does God want you to respond to the message of this parable? And we're going to kind of close there. And I know talking about money and things like that is a little taboo and a little sensitive and stuff like that. So I appreciate you guys uh, listening and discussing. And I just encourage you guys to continue the discussion. If you're struggling in one of these things, find somebody that can pray for you. Find somebody that can encourage you. Find someone that can give you good wisdom and good counsel, right, in how to uh, best handle the, the amazing blessings that God has given uh, to you. And so I'm just going to close this in prayer. Uh, again, feel free to hang out, but feel free to to leave uh, whatever you need to do. So, Jesus, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word, God, and I thank you that this parable that you, that you spoke 2,000-some uh, years ago in a very distant, foreign place, God, can have so much amazing relevance to our lives today. And I, I know that uh, this topic is, is, is difficult, and it really gets to the heart of who we are as people. Um, and it can be uncomfortable, and it can be a, a little bit... Um, offensive even, God. And so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us individually, Lord, and corporately, God. How can we be people that are living in your kingdom that model and live out the reality that this parable communicated to us today? God, we want to be people like the Apostle Paul that have learned to be content. God, regardless of where we are and God, regardless of where we're going to be, uh, we want to truly be satisfied in you, Jesus. God, in view what we have, whether we have a lot or a little, as just a vehicle to build your kingdom here. God, to bring your kingdom, to help participate in your kingdom. God, help us to be a people that, that are generous, God, with our, with our time, with our possessions, with our resources. These amazing gifts that you've given to us, God, help us to be people that, that prioritize your kingdom, that seek first your kingdom, God, and know that we can trust you because you're a good God that knows what we need, God, and desires to give us and provide for us as needed, Lord. And so we just praise you and thank you. Uh, God, just Holy Spirit, as we leave, speak to us, help us, uh, strengthen us to be able to respond in the way that you're asking us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>